been doing. And, um, you know, it's easy to check out when you're reading a, a lengthier passage. All right? Full confession. I know that happens to me. You've got to really kind of concentrate. Because while we'll look at this narrative that's found in uh, Acts chapter 3, and it's really two pericopes, but one narrative where God heals a beggar, um, unlike what Pastor Alex has had the last couple of weeks where there's really been shifts, we know that this text is written within a close or near context, and it's always essential to understand what has gone on before that, but having read it, I'm not going to specifically go over everything that's written in the text. So it's very important that we pay attention uh, to pick up on the various nuances that God gives the chapter. There will be only one perfect thing that happens this morning from the pulpit, and that will be, as long as I don't mess up any of the words, the text itself. So it's very important that we pay close attention to what the text actually says. Um, but before I dive in and we, and we read chapter 3 itself, to gather our minds toward this, ingrained in the Old Testament is the concept that the Messiah will one day come to dwell with his people. Now this dates back all the way to where Adam fell. And in the garden, God gave a promise, we know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send a Messiah to wreck the wrong that had taken place in Adam's willful rebellion. And that that Messiah would conquer Satan himself. The Messiah, in fact, would be the remedy to this sin. But this concept of the Messiah dwelling with his people has always been a part of the Old Testament and really was a part of when heaven and earth were together and worked in unison. Whereas now, today, we don't think of heaven and earth. We think of heaven as being very separate. Matter of fact, as you think about the Old Testament, heaven is not really talked about a lot. Because in the concept of God's people, they saw that the Messiah would dwell with God's people on the earth. Let me give you some examples of this. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11, the text says, I will make my dwelling among you. This, is, of course, is Yahweh speaking. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27 says, my dwelling place will be with them. He's talking about the Messiah coming and dwelling and being with God's people on the earth. Now, this might be one that's a, a closer fit to where you will call reading this one. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, and we know all the things that happened to Job, right? I mean, a lot of tragedy happened to Job. And yet Job said this, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he's talking about on the final day, he will stand on the earth, and in my flesh I will see God. 
Now, where does that come from? It comes from Job had the understanding that a Messiah would come one day to right all the wrongs, and he would dwell with God's people. Now, even as we look back in Acts chapter 1, we know that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days from his resurrection till he ascends. He's on the earth 40 days. You'll recall in Acts chapter 1, once again, the disciples asked this without total understanding because they would get it where we saw last week when, when, when God sends, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, but they asked this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Why? Because embedded into God's people's minds was the Messiah would dwell with God's people on the earth. I think that's very important to our understanding of Acts chapter 3 and what's going to take place here. Because in each of the covenants that is given in the Old Testament, what's enlarged is more and more of the concept of who the Messiah will be and what that Messiah will look like. And of course, you and I know that ultimately that was Jesus. And it is true, remains to this day, that Jesus will one day return and he will dwell with God's people, those who have been redeemed, those who we saw from the confession of faith this morning that our elder Zach read from, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, 8 or 9 in section 1. Now let's look at the text. Scripture says this, I got you now, don't I? You're, you're ready for this. Everybody's ready to pay attention to this, okay? Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man came from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now while he clung to Peter and John and all the people uttered, utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, 
Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by my own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you have delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you have killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man, this perfect health, and in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, and that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you will sanctify us by your truth. The word is truth. We ask in the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. I think I want to start this morning in looking at this text by getting rid of the gorilla that's in the room. And that gorilla would be, does God heal? A miraculous event takes place here in Acts chapter 3. It's astounding, really, given the context of how it happens and, and who all it affects. But I think every one of us, even if you're not a Christian, this morning has been affected and see the likes that is either on Christian radio or Christian television talking about healing. Some things will might even perhaps hit the news. Does God heal? Does God still do the miraculous? While I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, I want to say the most miraculous thing that God does, and of course we do believe that God heals in this sense, 
is God raises dead hearts to life. So we all sit here, um, at least as a part of the church, who were eternally wounded by our own sin, and God resurrected your dead heart to life in Jesus. But more specifically to this end, does, does God heal? And I want to say yes and no. There you go. I want to say yes and no. God, of course, certainly does heal because he's sovereign. And, and kind of with these things, just like Pastor Alex went through a section for us last week, kind of give his own opinion on this, I want to offer uh, some of my opinions on this text. So you can take that with uh, 2 or $3, depending on what coffee shop you go, and that's what it'll get you. But I think it's important to kind of look at this. Does, does God heal? I have a friend... Actually, Pastor Alex and I went to in early this year in Florida in March. And uh, he's a close friend. He's, he's, he's a lifelong friend in the sense we met each other when I was in my 20s. Um, he's like, I don't know, seven or eight years older than me. And just before I had met him, he had a, a cancer tumor in his stomach the size of a softball. Um, he had gone through... Um, all sorts of procedures related to this. And, um, but he was basically told, you've got three months to live, you're going to die. Um, it, the cancer is just in a location that we're not going to be able to take care of it. Long story short, as that church prayed for him, I don't know, like four to six weeks later, they went back in there, they took an x-ray of it, and the softball-sized tumor was gone totally gone and inexplicably even the doctor itself I don't know what to say other than God must have healed you God heals people I, I gave you that, that example and um, certainly you may have some examples but I also don't think what we see throughout the book of Acts again this is this is my opinion those aren't the normatives to this day okay in this text itself, I want you to think about it. This was a guy, this beggar, who was lame from birth. That means his feet and his ankles were entirely withered. He was never able to use them. So when Peter actually heals them, he grows out those limbs. And he, of course, leaps. And we know that Jesus, because it's Jesus, who is the one that is active, Pastor Alex told us about that a couple of weeks ago, he is the one that is active here, and that's how Peter and John respond. Hey, say, hey, look, it's not because we're pious, it's not because we're holy, Jesus of Nazareth is alive, he's the one that's healed him. So, the answer, does God heal today, is certainly true, I, I think he does, but he's not bent to whatever our own whims or needs are. Because again, the most important healing that God does is he resurrects our dead hearts and has given us eternal life. The point I want to say before we kind of divide out this text is, it, it, as Jesus um, is the healer of this lame beggar, is that in Jesus, 
the curse of sin in a person's life is reversed. Jesus is the answer for your sin. Okay? Your sin, my sin. The New Testament tells us specifically, he's the only answer for sin. Um, so as we look at this text this morning, there's another question that I wondered about, and that was, why is Peter and John going to the temple to pray? Well, there's a transition going on. And again, I want to offer one more opinion on what I think was actually happening going back to Pastor Alex's text last week in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we know the disciples are standing there and Jesus, he gives them a last instruction in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and then he just goes up into the clouds in heaven and, and heaven takes him there. God just takes Jesus. I think the disciples don't leave Jerusalem because they were in anticipation. Hey, look, he said he's coming back. And it's not going to be until he brings persecution that they actually disperse and take the gospel. And so I think Peter and John are doing what they normally did. They went to the temple to pray because that was an obedience to law. But that was one of the first things I thought of. Why are Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer? Well, they're simply doing and instructing as they already knew was a proper thing to do. But I really think in the backdrop of that, they are anticipating Jesus to return. He's going to come back, and he's going to come back very soon. And so through this disruption, which happens at the beautiful gate, that would have been the entryway into the temple, and then next to that entryway, a little bit further, was Solomon's porch, where men gathered to have theological discussion. The beggar strategically has himself placed, undoubtedly by family or perhaps friends, at the gate, because that's where you would have had to enter to ultimately get into the temple. And he's sitting there, and he's begging for money. And as he's begging for money, undoubtedly, when Peter looks at him and says, hey, look, I don't have any silver or gold, his heart sank. Because this dude's circumstance is dire. I, I don't even know if we can comprehend it. Because we have the blessing of hospitals, and, and, and the gospel has done so much good since through all these things in the history of the world. In all likelihood, beggars died because people would not help them. That's the dire need. And yet in this miraculous healing, it causes an uproar. I mean, this guy's not going to stop jumping up and down. He's, he's leaping and he's walking and he's praising God. And Peter and John are going to go up into the temple. And he's just hanging on to them as they drag him along the way to the porch. And then Peter decides, you know what? It's pretty obvious God wants me to preach here. And that's what he does. He stops. And he begins to preach. And so this is what we're going to do for the next few moments. There are three transitions here I want you to see. First of all, we're going to look at the sinfulness of man, okay? Because the sinfulness of man is in this text. 
Secondly, then we're going to look at the beauty of Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the responses to the gospel. So really what happened like 2,000 years ago is not really any different than today. The sinfulness of man, the beauty of Christ, and the responses of the gospel. You see, friends, the, this beggar, this lame beggar, really is a representative of us. It represents for us our own spiritual condition. Because like this lame man, as he was born lame, so you and I are born in sin. We are born, just as this guy couldn't walk, with a total inability to save ourselves. You see, you're not just a sinner because it took place a little bit later in life. No, the scripture says we were born in sin. Psalm 51 and Psalm 58. And according to verse 19 in chapter 3, we need what this beggar needs, and that is our sins blotted out. Because ultimately, as we look at the, the sinfulness of not just this beggar, but humanity in general, the scripture tells us in verse 26, our own wickedness is an affront to a God that is holy. So here you are. This is our condition. We're born in sin. We sin and we do it regularly. We are seen, please don't try to run from this, as wickedness before God. That even the very best things we do is wickedness compared to a God that is perfectly holy, born in sin, total inability. We cannot save ourselves. As we sang this morning, our sins, they are many. As we confessed this morning, we're confessing sins we don't even know we did or we forgot them. That's the condition of humanity. We are sinners born in sin. We live in our own wickedness. And unless someone comes to mercifully help this beggar man, he's going to die in his sin. Just as for you and I, unless someone comes to save us, we're going to die in our own sin. It's through that context that Peter says this. He says, hey, I want everybody to know this. Men of Israel and this everyone else looked at Jesus. And then Peter begins to expound upon, secondly, the, the beauty of Jesus. Now, a laundry list is given here about Jesus. It, it would be easy to miss some of this stuff. I want to give you real quickly six things that really reveal to us the, the beauty of Jesus. Number one is this, is that Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the deliverer. When, when Peter announces the God of Abraham in verse 13, the God of Isaac, 
the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, everyone in that audience would have known he's referring to the burning bush. We, we heard this morning from Exodus chapter 3 where our elder Bobby read that text. Everybody's attention is drawn. What Peter's trying to give them in the big picture, because we're all trapped in our own sin, in need of mercy, he gives them the big theme. And what's the big theme of the Exodus? Is that God would send a deliverer to save his people from bondage and slavery. Exodus chapter 3 addresses it. The apostle Peter immediately draws their attention that in Jesus, he is the deliverer. Jesus is the deliverer of the grand theme of redemption. And it's only in Jesus will you be saved from the slavery and bondage of your own sin. Jesus is the deliverer. He's the only one that can save us from our sin. Secondly, Jesus is the suffering servant. He mentions the word servant here in verse 13, in verse 18, in verse 26. And once again, God's people's ears would have been perked up. The nation Israel, those men of Israel, as they stood there, they would have perked up because they would have thought of Isaiah chapter 53. The early church would use the book of Isaiah often. Because in the book of Isaiah, sometimes people wondered, is God going to send two messiahs? Because Isaiah seems to talk about a suffering servant and a victorious king. And is it that that's the same person? At times they would wonder it. We, of course, know that that's not two, but one because Jesus is the suffering servant who takes God's people's sin upon himself and rises from the dead as the victorious, conquering general and king who suffers for his people's sin, who dies for his people's sin so that he will live on the earth with his people that he will make new. Jesus, of course, is the suffering servant. It is not two, but one. Thirdly, Jesus is holy and righteous. Jesus is holy and righteous. This is another thing that's beautiful about the Savior, Jesus. And it really should be beautiful to our ears because we're sinful incapable of saving ourselves and our own wickedness is an affront to a God that is holy. Thank God Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. We're going to see him called this several times through the book of Acts here in chapter 3. It's mentioned again in chapter 4 where Pastor Alex will preach next week where this healing 
causes such an uproar on those who reject Jesus. How strange is that? You know, unbelief is unreasonable. Dude gets raised. I mean, he can't walk. And everybody that's religious is standing there, well, well, how do they get this done? I mean, they're back there bickering. <laughs> These men of Israel, the high society. And Peter, of course, next week, as he's doing now, he's pointing them to Jesus. We're thankful that Jesus is holy and righteous because we're sinful and wicked. Jesus is holy and righteous serve to strengthen the gospel theme. Because until a person sees themselves as sinful and wicked, they're never going to come to see the need for a Savior. We do not want to shirk our own wickedness, our own sinfulness. The Messiah frees those who are enslaved. The book of Exodus the Messiah bears the sins of his people, the book of Isaiah. In Jesus, the curse of sin is reversed. It's reversed. Even death for the Christian in the New Testament is talking about they're just asleep. Because one day as we pass through this life, we will come out in the resurrection to a greater existence on the earth when Jesus returns and he makes everything new. Jesus is holy and righteous. Fourthly, Jesus is the final prophet. Once again, the term that is used here about prophet or prophets, Peter uses it seven times through this chapter. And, and it would have been very intuitive on the listener's parts to talk about the prophet. What Peter is saying is, is that Jesus is the final prophet. As he, re he recalls to them, and they know this, Moses is the first prophet who wrote the law. He then moves in verse 24 to tell them Samuel. Remember in Luke chapter 24, three weeks ago, we talk about the Old Testament division is the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, in the prophets, there were the former and the latter prophets. Samuel does that big grouping. Peter is pointing these people that Jesus is the point to what the prophets were speaking of. As Moses was the first prophet, as Samuel continues the big grouping of the second prophets, Peter is saying that Jesus is the final prophet. Jesus is the final word. Jesus was the coming Messiah whom all of the previous prophets spoken of. There will be no more revelation. Jesus is the final revelation and he's the only thing that's needed for our salvation. Fifthly, this. Jesus is the eschaton. Jesus is the eschaton. Now, I mentioned earlier about having a laundry list that's given here. I really think this is something that's missed the most 
in American Christianity from like the 70s through the 90s. We miss this. Because we either think about Jesus as the eschaton into I'll fly away, oh glory, or Salem Kurban, or Tim LaHaye, and people disappearing. We describe events that are never even mentioned in the Bible. It's weird. It really is weird. But man, Peter didn't read Tim LaHaye, but he read the Old Testament. Jesus is the eschaton. As Peter gives us a biblical theology of the Old Testament, I don't want us to miss this. Look at verse 20. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, that happens when you became a Christian. Your life is refreshed and awakened to God in the gospel. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says, whom heaven must receive, which it had, right, back to chapter 1, for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That theme that I mentioned in the beginning, that a Messiah would come and right every wrong and live with his people in eternity for earth along with the heaven, according to Revelation chapter 21, he will make entirely new. Why? Because Jesus is the eschaton, friends. He's much bigger than this small picture. Jesus is going to make everything new because Jesus is going to right all the wrongs. Jesus is going to dwell with his people forever. And this theme that was ingrained in the minds of the people of Israel would have rang fresh when Peter said these words, for the time of the restoring of all things include God's people and God's creation. Jesus is the eschaton because Jesus is the point of all history. He's the point. He's the reason. He's not the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason, period. You see, if you're living your life or you're seeing your life outside of anything in light of Christ, you're missing this. You're giving yourself to things that are not going to last. Jesus is the eschaton. Why? Because number six, Jesus is life. Jesus is the, he's the author of life, right? So Jesus gave you physical life on the earth, but then in verse 25, Jesus, of course, is the point of the covenant that God makes with Abraham because he is the seed in whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. You know what that blessing is? It's eternal life. Christ has blessed you and I with eternal life. We are a part of the families of the earth 
that have been blessed because Jesus is life. Now, where does this leave us? Well, let me tell you something. It leaves you with one of two places, and you can't, there's no third place, right? There's only two responses to the gospel. One can sit there and be like, you know, who's that old dude on stage telling me I'm a sinner and I'm wicked? I'm not that bad. You know, I was, I was raised in a Christian home, and I, I, I can remember, I seriously can remember reading in Romans chapter 3 because of a Bible class and whatnot. I said, wow, that, that people, was they're rotten. And I mean, I do some bad stuff, but that's really not me. And then I found out, you know what? He's talking about me. There's only two responses to the gospel. The first one is rejection. To reject Jesus is to be condemned. Look at verse 23. That's what Peter tells them. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, Moses foretelling, who's he talking about? Jesus. He shall be destroyed from the people. That's not ethnic Israel. That person who rejects the Messiah, that person now in this room who rejects Jesus will ultimately be condemned for all eternity. Other places, Scripture calls the eternal punishment a place called hell. We would beg of you, do not reject Jesus. Well, what is the proper response that is given here? Well, several times, Peter says in the text to repent and believe. We must become like that lame beggar, humbled by the condition of our own sinfulness, begging God for the salvation and the forgiveness of my sin. That's the condition where hearts get changed to God. To truly repent means to turn from your sin. It, it means this, right, before, because you can't, right, you can't remedy your own sin. It's to acknowledge what God says about me as a sinner is true. You must have the knowledge of the gospel. You can't just have the conviction of sin. Because that acknowledgement then turns you to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only remedy. And that remedy takes three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. While you find your condition... As a sinner who is wicked before God, and that knowledge turns you in humility to look to Jesus, who is God's merciful answer for your sin. It is in Jesus that your sin can be blotted out for all eternity. It is in Jesus that your sin can be forgiven. And the truth is, just like that beggar needed money for a meal 
we need forgiveness because every one of us are guilty. And let me tell you what the gospel has done now because the gospel is never neutral. You either hate that or, man, you're like me. Well, thank you. We love it. We need forgiveness because we're guilty. We need a holiness and a righteousness that we don't possess, but Jesus is. Jesus is the life giver. Look at verse 16. He says, and his name, by faith is his name. Now, now Peter ain't just dropping names. They say Jesus. That's representation of a theme. The name Jesus means God saves. That means when someone says Jesus or faith in his name, they are trusting in Jesus alone to save them from their sin. That's what Peter is saying, by faith in his name, which certainly that beggar did. It's through Jesus of Nazareth in the realization of your own sinful condition, you must trust in Christ and Him alone, and in Him alone only for your salvation. Because Jesus did live a sinless life. Because Jesus did die for the forgiveness of sin. Because Jesus rose from the dead to justify our faith that we place in Him. Dear friends, you need the knowledge of the gospel. You need to assent that those things are true, but don't stop there. Trust in Jesus alone to save you. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this text because Jesus says you saved this lame beggar, so we too, your people, the church, see our own selves. And it's only by your merciful hand, dear God, did we come to know where our sins would be blotted out, where our wickedness, our own personal wickedness, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus would be replaced with a righteousness that's not our own. It's, it's your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness. So we're thankful this morning, God, that you have accepted us based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we would pray that anyone who is sitting here that do not know Jesus would take him by faith and that you would strengthen your, your people this morning by the power of your word. Bless us now as we foreshadowing way take this table. The bread is certainly your body, Jesus, that was broken for us and the wine 
dear Jesus, was your blood that was shed. We give you thanks. We leap in praise and we cling to you because you are our only Savior. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may rise and go receive the elements. Child of 